And good morning to, the, to today's podcast. My name is Pete Smith. Our guest today will be Tristan Claridge from, from Social Capital Research and Training uh, in Dunedin, New Zealand. Uh, Tristan has a, a long history of well over two decades of research and writing uh, on the topic of social capital um, and has a particular interest in the application of social capital to organisations and businesses where he has extensive experience in that area. Um, you can find out a little bit more about Tristan's work and social capital research um, by going to their website, which is uh, www.socialcapitalresearch.com. So the social capital research is all one word. So we're just waiting for Tristan to join um, and away we'll go. Um, Tristan completed a master's involving research on, on social capital at the University of Queensland. Uh, in 2004, um, where he looked at his original research was around improving the performance of environmental groups, but discovered that the concept of social capital uh, wasn't particularly uh, well conceptualised for uh, to allow for a rigorous application. So his research has contributed greatly to a theoretical understanding of the concept. So Tristan is just joining us now. Um, he'll be on any second, according to the tech and Tristan. Tristan, welcome. Uh, hello, Peter. So, just turn up the volume a little so I can hear, so I can hear nice and clearly. Um, the subject of social capital. Tell us a little bit about your ideas. Um, well, I think you've summed it up in the introduction. Um, my interest probably started about 20 years ago, uh, or maybe a little more, and uh, I was really keen to apply the theory um, but I found that it was conceptually not ready for that. It wasn't really a mature theory that could be readily applied. Um, so I applied my efforts towards um, trying to uncover the theoretical basis for it and uh, shed more light on that. And unfortunately, 20 years on, that, that work has not yet stopped. Um, I'm, I'm continuing to work on, on the theory and the, and the concept, and I think it... Uh, as much as it's progressed in the last 20 years, I think it's still not yet a mature theory. I think that's an interesting one because often a lot of, a lot of my work where you, you, the subject of, of social capital comes up in disability and employment all the time, but we tend to find the concept itself is not clearly understood by people. There's, there's different interpretations, um, which obviously leads to potentially its misapplication um, inside structures and organisations. Is, is that what your research tells you? or? Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, um, because just about every discipline in the social sciences has approached social capital uh, from their own discipline-specific sort of epistemology, they've approached it in very different ways and looked at different aspects of it. And, and so you end up with very different definitions of what social capital means, dependent on the discipline, but also dependent on the context of interest and even the understanding of, of what the term social and capital actually mean. And I think from all of that, you end up with two fairly distinct and separate uh, threads in the literature. One that really treats it as an individual resource uh, and, and treats it as a resource. And one that looks at more from the macro societal level and treats it more as social norms uh, and trust and those sort of shared understandings that are quite similar to a society's culture. 
It, it's interesting. You talk about different understandings. Um, last year, when I spent time in uh, at Cornell in New York working on a new disability employment outcome measure that, um, based on social quality theory, the, the thing that struck me, uh, surprised me quite a lot, was when I started that, I, I discovered that the term social wasn't clearly defined, yet we use it so often in social sciences, yet the definition wasn't particularly clear. And I all came to the conclusion that that you nearly have to define social for the context you're using it in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that, I think that is part of the problem with um, the vagueness of, of social capital is, is just trying to define what social actually means. Right. And, and again, because if you look in, certainly in my field of, of disability and employment, they, they talk all the times about how employment improves social inclusion, social cohesion and all and any other you know, words you want to add behind social. But again, it seems that the definitions are contextual to the setting and, and the purpose you're trying to, to use, um, I guess, the service for. Yeah, absolutely. So in your work itself, when you think about in this area of social capital and employment, and we often talk about it from the, from the context of using people and family social capital, social capital to, to improve employment possibilities, what does your research tell you in terms of the individual social capital and family social capital? Uh, I think that... Um... Social capital is one of those concepts where you can approach it from the individual perspective and you can also approach it from the group or societal perspective. And so you've, you've got the ability to look at it from a macro down to a micro level and also from a micro level within the context of the macro. So I think there's, there's a lot of potential to understand what's happening in an individual's context or in a particular context by using the, the framework or the lens of social capital theory. So I think that... Uh, at the individual level, I think we, we often assume, or social capital theory often assumes certain outcomes. And I think you've already alluded to some of those already, those assumptions already, that if people are employed, then there's, there's certain improvements occur. But I think that hides a lot of the diversity uh, between individuals and it also hides uh, or, or obscures what individuals actually want um, some individuals don't really want to be social. They don't really want to have social relationships. And I think there's a tendency with social capital theory just to assume certain outcomes. When you, um, when I was looking at the conceptualization, I, I noticed on um, your research, you've, you've illustrated uh, a number of different approaches. And, and on your website, you, you talk about the communitarian institutional network and synergy approach. Can you explain what those different approaches are? Well, I think those approaches were defined by Michael Woolcock in 1998. So they, they're not quite so applicable now, perhaps, as they used to be. I think that what maybe started off as being four reasonably distinct approaches, I think, have, has now coalesced really into the two that I mentioned previously, the, the individual resource type approach, which is typically called the network approach. Um, and that's the approach that tends to be preferred by economists and for people who look for individual agency. So reductionist type paradigms tend to prefer that kind of approach. And then the other one is perhaps similar to the communitarian approach, 
although that term isn't used very often and it's more of the, the macro level looking down. So it's perhaps more uh, synonymous with, say, social cohesion, which is another related term, which is very, very similar to that sort of approach. Um, and that the, this latter approach is also sometimes called the normative approach because uh, it basically treats social capital as being the, the wider societal norms and, and trust at the, at the broader level. When you look at the uh, construct of social quality theory, which came out of um, uh, out of Europe as a um, as a, a way of measuring uh, economic policy against um, social outcomes, they talk about um, this area of um, I lost my train of thought there for a second. But when we you know we look at that the the notion of um, uh, of Oh, I've just lost my train of thought, <laughs> but let me re rephrase that. But when I when I look at the, the processes of, of social and social capital, I, I, I tend to look at them from the perspective, and certainly my research bears out that, that you mentioned social cohesion, and social cohesion from that perspective uh, is where we have um, the social defined as part of an, a collective identity, whereas in, inclusion tends to be related to the personal identity. So when I start to look at that, I think, okay, social capital has has two processes. One is the individual and who can generate social capital. But then when it, what value does social capital have? Because we talk about social capital having a value, but if you're an individual and you, as part of your um, process of, of, of developing that capital, you choose to use inclusion as a methodology for you to actually stay away from society because that's a choice, what value then does social capital have for an individual? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a difficult question. and I'm not sure I'm really answering your question, but I, I took from what you're saying, I sort of took the, the two approaches of, of how an individual has some degree of agency over their social capital. And there's, there's definitely things that an individual can do to improve or in fact damage their own personal social capital. You know, they can go and meet people and, and build networks. And when they're trusting in those relationships and they can, that clearly has benefits. They can build shared understanding with people by communicating and, and develop shared goals and shared purpose. So an individual certainly has <clears throat> A reasonable amount of control over their social capital but it's always within the context of the wider wider social setting so there are always uh, you know, generalized trusts there's always social norms that exist there's always rules uh, and roles that exist that individual is operating within that framework and so as much as I mentioned the two approaches, one being the network and individual approach and one being the sort of normative sort of macro approach, it's really impossible to separate those two uh, because the individual is clearly the agent that operates to realise social capital. So individual relationships, individual action is clearly vital to social capital. But an individual only has a little bit of control within the context of the wider social structure. And so it goes both ways. Right. And, and, and trust comes up there. You, you talked about trust and trust is one of the underpinning theories that we see as, as one of the drivers for employment in the area of disability without the capacity to, to develop trust in both the system and the individuals. 
then it, it would seem to me that without that element, social capital really doesn't exist. Um, so how do we then look at the process of going, okay, we know what social capital is to a degree, but if trust is one of the underpinning factors, how do we go out then supporting the development of trust to create social capital? Um, I think trust, I mean, trust is a very broad concept. So trust can be embedded within individual relationships. Uh, and we typically would call that thick, thick trust. Uh, but of course, that we, we also have a sort of generalized idea about trust or social trust, which we more broadly apply to people. Uh, and it's our more sort of normative understanding of what it means in society to trust somebody or to be trustworthy. And so it's trust is a very complex uh, concept and it, it really underpins all human interaction. And, it, and that's why some authors have equated social capital as being trust, quite literally, social capital is trust, because trust is so important. When you think about what trust really is, trust is a, an understanding. So it's an understanding held by an individual, and, it's an under, and that understanding is commonly held by others as well. So it's a shared understanding that isn't really all that dissimilar to the way norms work. Uh, and identity and belonging and shared language and narratives. All of these really are uh, an individual's beliefs about how they fit within the social structure and how other people will relate with them. So I don't we, think I've answered your question. Your no, question really was about how do we build trust? Yeah. Let me, let me go in a different direction for a second. If we look at corporations and corporations that one of the... the, the the things that are trending at the moment in, in organisations is around the idea of a social licence. So how does an organisation build social capital? Um, I think the way to do so would be to look at the dimensions of social capital. So uh, the structural, the relational and the cognitive dimensions and look at activities that can enhance all three of those um, dimensions. And so giving people within the organization an opportunity to, uh, to build social relationships uh, is a really important way to build structural social capital. And then encouraging people to act uh, positively towards one another. And there's various ways that an organization can do that can help to build the relational dimension. And then also having shared purpose and shared goals and being consistent in the the way the organization operates uh, can build shared understanding. And that's an area where a lot of organizations aren't particularly strong because what tends to happen is they have documentation that says one thing and that even might be on the masthead and it, it might be their, their stated purpose for existence. But then in other documentation, it contradicts that. And then managers contradict that. And then there's inconsistency in the messages that are being sent and that results in there being a lot of uncertainty about what the real reality is within that organization. So lining up all of those different factors to create a single point of truth can really help to build shared understanding and confidence in, in what the purpose of the organization is and what is and isn't appropriate within that organization. Right. So this goes to some of the, the, the barriers that we find in organisations when it comes to, to disability and diversity employment is that they have a lovely statement um, on their, you know, their website or whatever, but when you come inside the organisation, you find 
that there are people that are well-intentioned, but then there are similarly, there are people that are, the bulk of people in the organisation are so busy doing their job and doing the things that make the organisation function that the idea of, of creating social capital and the capacity to, to translate that masthead statement into reality is a struggle. I mean, what do we need to do then to, as inside organisations, to go, okay, we have individuals that are creating social capital, we have a, a lovely statement, but the business of running the business is so overwhelmed by its day-to-day activities that it tends to sort of, well, not capitalise on that the individuals that are creating social capital. Yeah, I think that an organisation will place uh, an emphasis on the things that they consider to be important. And so some people sitting around a table and coming up with something uh, that they go, they put into the, the, the procedures, um, it doesn't necessarily then filter through to the rest of the organisation and what the organisation collectively, the shared understanding within the organisation considers to be uh, important. And importance is a very relative thing, of course, because it can be important, but we just don't have time for it. It's obviously less important than perhaps it could be. And you, you do need to prioritise. Not everything can have maximum importance and can be in the forefront of everybody's mind. But I think that we need to be careful when we're putting in place and we're, uh, you know, procedures and documentation and we're saying this is the way that it's going to be, that if that isn't actually reflected by the organisation, then the... Uh, the variability between the documentation and the general understandings that are held by the individuals within the organisation, that actually creates uncertainty. And in some ways, I think it can do more harm than good uh, when that happens, because then it's almost like a little bit of a loss of trust or a loss of credibility or a loss of goodwill when you have that inconsistency, because everyone, it, it becomes evident to people when they read the documentation and it says one thing, and then everyone in the organisation does and believes something that's altogether different. So if you were looking to address that inside an organisation, I mean, I take the view that in order to address that, you whilst you can create the lovely documents and align everything internally, it's actually out in the field where the individual might have to, to work with, with is where you've got to actually have a better understanding of what's going on um, because ultimately it's that one-on-one at the workplace outside that that is really the evidence that social capital is being used effectively in an organisation. Yeah, so I think you like to to make to allow social capital to be used effectively throughout an organisation really requires some some deeper understanding from the individuals involved and some buy-in and ownership of that as well. So uh, I guess it requires some investment uh, on the part of the organisation to to capacity build, if you like, or to improve the individuals within the organisation's understanding of social capital and why it's important and what the organisation collectively values and, and trying to get that all to line up as best as it can. With... The current situation where obviously we're, where most of the businesses have been locked down for a couple of months now, we, we face an interesting dilemma where we're finding employment for, for people that are, that are generally marginalised in, in the employment environment. How are we going to go about moving forward and starting to actually find employment opportunities for, for people 
that have diminished social capital, if not zero social capital in the current setting. Have you spent any time looking at the, the, the pathway forward? Um, no, not exactly. I think that the the issue of connectedness, I think, is is a bit of a, a change is happening with how connected we all are uh, with a bit of physical distancing and a lot more people working from home. And I think the that if we carry on as we are with a lot of people working independently from home and there being less of the incidental types of interactions that can facilitate the benefits of social capital. And I'm talking about benefits that can flow on to people um, who are looking for jobs who don't, don't currently have one. Um, because you can imagine by the water cooler, you're talking with a colleague and you and they mention some particular role that they might need to fill and you, oh, I've, my uncle, my friend, my someone or other um, is looking for, for a job and they might be perfect for that. So under the current environment, because we have less of that incidental interaction, we have less opportunity for social capital to be realized uh, and the outcomes to actually come about. So I think we need to look at ways of becoming a bit more connected. So I, I think that raises an interesting point because obviously certainly here in Australia where a million people um, became unemployed a few months ago because of the the, the current situation of the virus, we've, that connectedness isn't there. Um, and I, I mean, I'm certain your experience is probably similar to mine in that I haven't really left the house other than for groceries in three months now. So what social capital that might have existed in the community is no longer there. So we're going to have people that are going to be reluctant to go into the community for some time, but at the same time, a lot of those business opportunities are not there. So, so how are we going to, you know, start to think about how do we create that social capital, that network capital that will find that employment because obviously governments are of the belief that business will come back reasonably quickly and that will be their solution to their economic dilemma. So it presents itself as a really interesting problem. Uh, have you any thoughts on that? Um, I think the quick fix is membership in associations. Uh, basically where you, you, you form social groupings and you encourage people to join those social groupings. And so that membership then encourages social interaction and information flows that can occur, particularly uh, employment type uh, interest groups where the, the interest is in employment, then that, that may help to facilitate some of those types of connections. But I think an interesting point is that when you think about what social capital really is, it it, it's the networks that exist and, and they're, they're not lost. Those networks still exist. We still know people and the trust still exists. We still have trust in people and, and in society, just very similar to how we did before. And the norms still exist and identity still exists and belonging still exists. So all of these things really still exist and they haven't really changed, haven't really gone away. But the difference is that the opportunity to realize the benefits of those things has been reduced. And, and I think that's one of the key things about social capital is that it, its true nature exists in our minds and in our shared understandings and in the roles that we have, but they, we can only really realize that or only get the manifestation of that when we have social interaction. And at the moment, a lot of the social interaction is, is online and perhaps the nature of that social interaction is a little... Uh, has fewer opportunities for social capital to be realised than it did. And I think this is where 
perhaps we have an opportunity to try and change the way we socialize and we interact um, online and electronically to, to do things in ways that may present more opportunities for social capital to be realized, for the outcomes to be realized. When, when we look at the current situation, a, a lot of the media at the moment uh, tend, is focused on the idea that that a lot of organisations, because they now had a couple of months of experience of their staff working remotely and using technology and video conferencing, there's, there's this almost an expectation that a lot of people won't go back to their work site. They'll continue to work remotely. And to me, that seems to suggest that whilst it might be lovely to get out of bed and work in your pyjamas and not have to, to race out the door and get on a train and travel, it seems to me that that diminishes the, the ability to create real connectedness and real social capital. Is technology the solution or is it, is it simply a way that we're going to have to reconsider what, how we create social capital for those people that have now chosen to stay working remotely? Uh, I think we need to change the way we value social interaction uh, and basically social capital because technology can be the solution or it can be the cause of the problem. It's, it's really about how we choose to use the technology that will result in it either being positive or, or being negative. And so I think that if we continue as we are and as a society, I don't think we value social relationships and social interaction very highly and we don't as a society really understand the benefits and the value that it has. So I think if we continue on as we are and we move towards working from home on a regular basis or a permanent basis, I think that will significantly damage social capital uh, because unless we purposefully do things differently than we have been with technology, then we'll have those kinds of missed opportunities we've been talking about without that social interaction. Right. So we need to change the way people value social relationships and social interaction. And then we need to create norms of what's appropriate and normal and expected with the use of technology to therefore uh, facilitate the realisation and the, the opportunity of, of social relationships and social interaction. And I think unless we do that, then the move towards working from home um, could be devastating for social capital. Right. So obviously... This raises a really interesting proposition is that, you know, if we're going to have people working remote, we've got to create an opportunity for them to still physically connect on some form of basis. So would that simply mean that, that people have the capacity to maybe not work from home permanently, but say, okay, you work five days a week, so what you can do is, is three days a week you can work from home and two days you come to the office, which will be less about your work capacity but more about maintaining some level of social capital within the organisation and sort of cohesion also within the organisation. Yeah, I think that would have some benefits. But I also think that if, if we think about the technologies that we currently have access to um, sitting in our office at home, when we think about those technologies, it, I think it would be possible to use them in such a way as to replace and perhaps even enhance the social interactions we can have face-to-face -face in a workplace. But it requires using those technologies in ways that we're not used to using them and being very, very purposeful about that. And I think that for a lot of people, they either don't have the skills to be able to use those technologies in those ways or, in fact, it's just too uncomfortable to do so because 
the norms either don't really exist or that technology isn't really quite suited to being used for that particular purpose or whatever the reasons might be, they, they have expectations about other people being too busy or, or not wanting to connect or, or not also not valuing the, the benefits and the importance of social relationships and interaction. So I think it is possible to use technology right now with what exists, um, but there's a lot of barriers in the way of doing so. What about marginalised groups? You know, there's this there's, there's common belief that everybody has access to technology of some description or not, but obviously marginalised groups and, and people with disabilities, as, as a rule, generally don't have access to the, the latest and greatest technology that, that we all sort of take for granted. So how do we ensure that that people that are marginalised in, in society at a socioeconomic level still are able to to develop social capital, access social capital, and and benefit from that social capital? Uh, I, I think it's absolutely one of the barriers that needs to be listed uh, front and centre when we're thinking about using technology to replace social interaction is uh, not only the devices themselves, uh, but also the connectivity, the internet connection to be able to use them efficiently, uh, sufficiently high speed and, and stable. Uh, I think that a lot of people in society have a smartphone one way or another, even if it's an older version of the smartphone. And that really opens the door to a lot of possibilities for the use of technology that we're talking about. But I think that for a, a very large percentage of society, there's uncertainty about how to do that and, and which tool to use and, and how to use that particular tool or technology. And it's not just the, um, the technical ability to do so, but it, it perhaps it's also some of the, the, uh, the personal characteristics about not perhaps having a uh, great vocabulary and not being able to communicate readily, say on uh, the phone or, or using video chat or by some of these, these uh, methods. And also the uncertainty about the norms is how do I do that is, especially if they feel on, on the outer, they feel a little bit excluded from the, the tech-savvy group, uh, then they might have even more reasons to feel uncomfortable about trying to connect and use those technologies. That, that almost points to a, to a new service delivery model for human service organisations in that, that maybe before they start to focus on whether you know, we should be looking for or assisting someone to find employment, maybe what we should be focusing on is ensuring they have access to to technology that enables them to to participate freely like everyone else and then at the same time focusing on their capacity to both communicate effectively and to use that technology and maybe by addressing those particular aspects as the, at the start of a service delivery you possibly enhance the capacity of that individual to to participate effectively in the community the way they want, and at the same time, improve their capacity to generate social capital. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uncertainty is a very big barrier for people when they're looking to do something new. And so a program that can encourage people to, in a safe and comfortable way, to use those technologies, perhaps even communicating with each other or communicating uh, you know, in some sort of a group format 
um, would really reduce a lot of those uncertainties, which when, would likely in, improve the uptake of those technologies as well. So if we address that side of it, then I guess the other side of it is that whilst the individual uh, who's in the community looking for employment or looking to participate in society is, shall we say, the supply side, the demand side obviously is, is employers. So if we start to address that, supply issues around the, the capacity to use technology and create social capital, then how do we then link the demand side, employers, to that improved capacity? Do we, you talked about social capital inside the organisation. So do we then need to, to consider the other side of it is if people are starting to use this type of technology, maybe we one of the barriers we have to address is inside the organisation and how they will how they go about allowing people to access their organisation. Yeah, that certainly is. And I I think that uh, if you look at the way a lot of organisations have operated over the last 10 or 15 years, they've they've, uh, launched into social media in some capacity. And a lot of organisations employ a person specifically to handle the social media side of things. I think for most organisations, that's still very static it still tends to be posting content and perhaps uh, handling replies and messaging um, to keep everything in line with the corporate ideals, corporate values. Um, But I I don't know how much of it has really progressed to a real uh, connection with society and with the community and with the customer base beyond simply posting and being a fairly sort of one-way channel. Uh, within social media. So I think there's scope there for organisations to improve um, how they connect with the wider society via social media. So I think there's some work to be done on that. Um, But I also think that a lot of the barriers within an organisation around employment still probably relate to how they perceive the relationship between the employee and the employer. And I think for a lot of organisations, it's still perceived to be a cash, a payment for services type of relationship, rather than being something that is more uh, more human, more encompassing of uh, the social relationship that that also represents, that it's not really just an economic transaction, it's also a social relationship between uh, the, the, the employee and the employer. And I think that that can be improved quite considerably. And when we, when employers start to think of it in that way, then everybody in society, regardless of their disability or regardless of their uh, experience and skills, can potentially be uh, perceived as being a valuable member of the organisation. Right. So we get away from this utilitarian approach where it's simply uh, you, you have labour, I have money and I'll buy your labour uh, and that's all there is to it. There's no, there's no personality, there's no individual, it's just simply an exchange of two business units. So if you look at small business where traditionally the larger employment uh, numbers happen, uh, particularly for people that are, that, you know, I mean, certainly in the area of disability, it's where most of the employment tends to, tends to be found. Small business has just obviously gone through some considerable shocks and possibly going to be reluctant to employ. So how do we potentially address that reluctance and that, that absence to invest in, in social capital? 
Um, I think this is where economics might dictate a little bit for a while. I think if employers are looking at their cash flow and they're looking at their expenses uh, and they've made the decision not to employ, then it, uh, it's hard to really uh, tell them otherwise. Uh, but I think where jobs do exist, I think where there's an opportunity to bring people in and uh, see the, the, the positivity of the relationship and the potential to build the, the business um, and improve the organisation from the individual's efforts. And I think that's where uh, there can be opportunities for employment. But uh, most people just think very, very purely in, in economic terms. And so it, it can be very difficult for the business owners and and managers to think in other terms. Right. This starts to suggest that the way forward in real terms is not going to be about focusing on economic units, but about building up the social, the relationship side, uh, the individual trust, the organisational trust, and, and by doing that will potentially create the social capital necessary to create the employment opportunities going forward. Yeah, I think so, and I, and I think like the point about if you if you remove the, the the economic transaction, if you start stop thinking about employment in those terms, then then everybody has value and everybody can contribute to the organisation, uh, and when people are feel like they're valued, then their contribution to the organisation is so much greater, regardless of of any barrier that that may exist uh, through disability or or individual capacity and I think that tends to be perhaps what stops a lot of employers from employing people with disabilities is because they perceive that they won't get the financial return they're looking for that economic transaction won't be stacked in their favor quite so much uh, and I don't think that's a particularly helpful way to think when you value the full suite of, of uh, benefits that an individual can provide when they feel valued and they feel connected and to an organisation, uh, they can have uh, incredible impact. Right, because often uh, the arguments over the years when disability employment has always been to wheel out statistics about the economic capacity and value of, of having a person with disability in your workforce, and I've never been a fan of that because it, to me that's simply suggesting that they're a commodity and this commodity approach, to, to my mind, is 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 shall we say, it's a way to destroy social capital. So I think that from my perspective, shifting away from this idea that a person is 30 times more reliable and has sick, less sick days and this sort of stuff really ignores the real contribution they make to an organisation, which is, you know, if you go into the coffee shop, it's the fact that they you feel like you own the place because they all know you and, and that sort of thing. I think they're probably, to my mind, they're the social capital values that, that really attract you to a business rather than simply the economic unit cost. Absolutely. So one more final thing. Uh, I think this has been really fascinating. So where, are we, where do we need to go with social capital theory research? Uh, I, th I think we need to go a little further on trying to reconcile the different approaches that uh, we've taken to, to it. And I also think that uh, we need to explore the different areas and, and understand them a little better than we currently do. Um, I think that most of the social capital work is, uh, a lot of it seems to be based on assumption uh, and particularly assumption about causality. And so I think the, the individual components of social capital 
need to be investigated more thoroughly and where they have already been investigated in the literature, then they need to be applied more thoroughly. And I think a good example is trust, which is often just blindly and blanketly applied to social capital theory. But of course, trust uh, is very complicated and has its own uh, theory that's been well established over many decades of research. So I think that's the main thing we need to do. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for today. That's been been brilliant, apart from my occasional memory lapses. Um, I really appreciate your contribution to the subject and, and your research. It's certainly extraordinary and it certainly adds significant value to society. Um, thank you for your time today. Um, been brilliant. Great. Thanks, Peter. Not a problem. Thanks, Tristan. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. And that's the end of our podcast for today. Uh, it'll be live on Spotify um, and iTunes a little bit later on today. Thank you, everyone.